please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians 6, and we're going to be looking at a few chapters around Ephesians 6. You'll need a Bible. Uh, These brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back, so get their attention. If you need a Bible, please do that because we want everybody to have one. It's our gift to you. Ephesians 6. On this Father's Day, our message, it's going to be on that theme, and then next week we're going to be treated to the ministry of author and hymn writer Chris Anderson. He's going to be in Michigan for a conference, and he's going to stop next weekend by CBC. Following week, two weeks from today, on July the 3rd, we'll be back to our study of the book of Acts. An article in Reader's Digest several years ago was titled, Perfect Home. And it said, one child makes a home an educational course for both himself and parents. Two children make it a private school. Three or more make it a campus. But as one preacher has said, many parents today are not sure that they are up to being professors in this university, nor are they sure what the curriculum should be. So in the vacuum of training for how to be a parent, Here's what most of us do. We wing it. We resort to my parents taught me, which may or may not be correct. And if you have two of you, a dad and mom, raising your kids, each of your sets of parents may have taught you different things that conflict with one another, and now it's a battle between the two of you for whose approach is going to prevail. For some of you, you weren't thrilled with your upbringing. And so rather than emulating what your parents did, you determined to do the opposite, which just means you make different mistakes than they did, but at least they're your mistakes. One aspect of the manifold grace of God is that He does not leave us to grope in the darkness. Scripture says, your word is a lamp for my feet, it's a light on my path. God tells us what we need to know to carry out what it is God wants us to do. And in the most well-known passage in the Bible about the Bible, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're told all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when we're told that Scripture equips us for every good work, every good work includes the good work of parenting. And so in the school that is your home, God's Word is the curriculum, and God's character is the degree. And today, fathers, we're going to be reminded regarding what God tells us that we're to teach and to model before our children. Let's bow now then and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank You for gathering us on every Lord's Day. Thank You for this Lord's Day that implicitly celebrates the resurrection, the first day of the week when the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. But then we thank You for this Father's Day that in our culture we set aside in order to celebrate, to be instructed on this institution that You have given for human flourishing. We ask, Lord, that we will indeed be instructed and that we, especially we men, we fathers, 
will leave today willing to do what you say in your word in order to bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, you should have received an outline when you came in today, as each week. And I say, first of all, in the outline, that fathers are to be submissive. The passage that we're going to look at is in verse 4 of chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, you don't see the word submit or submission in that passage. And yet I say in the outline, fathers are to be submissive. So how do I, how do I get that? Well, it's in connection, the, the connection between that verse and what is before it. Because Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 is part of a section that begins in the prior chapter, in chapter 5 and verse 21. Please take a look at chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now the one another relationships in which we're to demonstrate submission are then given in the verses that follow in chapter 5. So right after that, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 22 says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, this is not a message about the submission of wives, but just a note regarding the end of that verse where it says, as you do to the Lord. It's not that you submit to your husband because he's always right and good like the Lord is, but rather you do this as a matter of obedience to the Lord, not your husband. And in fact, it may come as a surprise to some to learn that the Bible never actually says for wives to obey their husbands. Now, most of you know that your New Testament was written in Greek, and in the original Greek manuscripts, the word submit is not in verse 22. Instead, this is what it says, wives, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, the reason the New International Version that most of us are using, and that's the Bible that the guys were distributing, the reason it supplies the word submit yourselves is because it carries over from that prior verse, where again it says, submit to one another, and then immediately begins showing the various relationships in which we're to do that. So, submit to one another, and then it says, wives, to your own husbands. That is, wives, submit to your own husbands. But then if you look down in verse 25, after giving instructions to wives about their submission, it says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is now a second set of people who are to submit to one another in obedience to the verse back in verse 21. Husbands submit to their wives by loving them sacrificially as Christ did his church. And then there's yet another relationship that requires submission at the beginning of chapter 6. Verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. In fact, in chapter 6, it's both children and slaves are told to obey, but again, wives are not told to obey. This obedience is how children carry out the command back in chapter 5 and verse 21 to submit to one another. Then in verse 4, we, we have, you have fathers addressed on how it is that they submit in their relationships with their children. Verse 4, again, we do not exasperate our children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5, tell slaves how to submit. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And finally, slave masters, or in our context, employers, bosses, managers, 
are also to submit. Verse 9 of chapter 6, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So the entire passage from chapter 5 and verse 21 that says submit to one another, all the way to chapter 6 and verse 9, is how submission looks in different relationships. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, fathers to children, employees to employers, and employers to employees. And I want you to see one other thing about the entirety of this passage, that it actually goes back further than chapter 5 and verse 21. It goes back a few verses before that. Please look at chapter 5 again. But go back to verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. We're given the command to be filled with the Spirit, and then we're given five ways that that should show up in our lives. Verse 19, speaking, singing, making music. Verse 20, giving thanks. And then verse 21, submitting. That is, people who are filled with the Spirit will demonstrate it in these ways, speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and yes, submitting. And if you notice in, again, the NIV, in the New International Version, verse 21 is a paragraph set off to itself. And that's because it's a, literally a pivotal passage. It ends what goes before and it starts what follows. And what follows is wives submitting to the husbands, husbands submitting to wives by loving them, children submitting to parents by obeying them, fathers submit to their children in the ways that we're going to see in chapter 6 and verse 4, employees submit to their employers by obeying them, and employers submit to their employees by respecting them. And all of this is evidence that wives, husband, children, employees, and employers are under the control of the Spirit. So, fellow fathers, dads, we need to lose the arrogance and the self-centeredness that says my family is here for me. The Bible teaches that we are all here for the other, and we all defer to the needs and roles of others in different ways. Spirit-filled men show it by being submissive husbands and fathers. Now, living that out requires spiritual growth and progress in in maturity. But a working definition of submission is this. I'm all about the people that I'm called to serve. I put their interests before mine. We defer to the well-being of others. Wives do that for husbands, husbands for wives, children for parents, fathers to children, employers to employees, and employees to employers. Fathers are to be submissive, and fathers are to be biblical. Now, when I say fathers are to be biblical, I'm saying that fathers need to look at their children through the lens of what is sometimes called the biblical worldview, the overall story of the Bible, starting in Genesis and into which we all fit, including our children. That biblical worldview is sometimes summarized as creation, fall, and redemption. And you see all three in how fathers are to interact with their children, according to Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers are to be biblical, that is, see their task and see the children with whom they carry out that task 
through a biblical worldview lens, and that requires that they be, I say, encouragers. Now, this is the creation part of how we see our children biblically, and I'll home in on that for a bit. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. The word exasperate means to take the wind out of their sails. Do not do anything in word, attitude, or deed that takes the wind out of the sails of your children. In Colossians 3.21, which was read earlier, it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, why are fathers particularly instructed about how they must avoid mistreatment of their children by discouraging them? I think part of the reason is because men are more likely than women to be overly harsh and hurtful. A commentator in the 1700s, in considering why this command is so definitely addressed to fathers, said that mothers have a kind of divine patience, but, quote, fathers are more liable to be carried away by wrath. And I think that accords with, with common experience. This protection of children is yet another way in which Christianity elevated the plight of humanity. Much has been written about how Christianity lifted the status of women in a patriarchal society, but Christianity did even more for children. Now, I'm going to quote New Testament scholar William Barclay at some length because his description of the, first, the situation in the first century for children, it's interesting and it's helpful, but it's also quite unsettling. So I want to warn you ahead of time that some of what he describes can shock our sensibilities. There were certain features of Roman culture into which Christianity was founded that made life for children quite dangerous. There was the Roman in Latin, patria potestas. That means the father's power. Under the patria potestas, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could punish as he liked and could even inflict the death penalty. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over a child's whole life, as long as the father lived. A Roman son never came of age. Even when he was a grown man, even if he were a magistrate of the city, even if the state had crowned him with well-deserved honors, he remained within his father's absolute power. Now, it's true that the father's power was seldom carried to its limits, because public opinion would not have allowed it, but the fact remains that in the time of the New Testament, children were absolutely in the Father's power. And secondly, there was the custom of child exposure. When a child was born, it was placed at its father's feet, and if the father stooped and lifted the child, that meant he acknowledged it and wanted to keep it. If he turned and walked away, it meant he refused to acknowledge it, and the child could quite literally be thrown out. There's a letter dated 1 B.C., just right around the time of the birth of Jesus, from a husband to a wife. The husband is in Alexandria, Egypt, writing to his wife back home. He says, now that we are still, know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all of the others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech of you to take care of the little child And as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. And then he says, and she must be 
expecting because he says, if you have a child, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. And then he says, you sent word telling me do not forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, not to worry. It's really a strange letter. So full of affection and yet so callous towards the child who may be born. A Roman baby always ran the risk of being rejected and exposed. In the time of the Apostle Paul, in the the first century, this risk was even greater. It was the custom that unwanted children were left in the Roman Forum. There they became the property of anyone who cared to pick them up. They were collected at night by people who looked after them in order to sell them as slaves or to stock the brothels in Rome. An ancient civilization was merciless to the sickly or deformed child. The Roman philosopher, statesman, and playwright Seneca wrote, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle lest they taint the herd. Children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. Children who were weak and imperfectly formed had little hope of survival. And it was against that situation that Paul wrote his teaching to children and parents. Hear this, friends. If ever we are asked what good Christianity has done to the world, we need only point to the change brought about in the status of women and children. Barclay offers three ways in which we can do injustice to our children. We can forget that things do change and that the customs of one generation are not the customs of another. He says the short story writer Eleanor Mordaunt tells how once she stopped her little daughter from doing something by saying, I was never allowed to do that when I was your age. And the child answered, but you must remember, mother, you were then and I'm now. Secondly, we can exercise such a control that we actually insult our own raising of our children. To keep children reined in too long is to say that we do not trust them, which is simply to say we have no confidence in the way in which we train them. It's better to make the mistake of too much trust than too much control if indeed we have raised our children for the Lord. And I've called that, when I've taught parenting here over the years, controlled exposure. That is, we are going to release our children. For this reason, says the Bible in Genesis 2, a man will leave his father and mother. We're going to raise our children to leave. But prior to them leaving, we're going to prepare them for that eventuality. And we do that in controlled exposure, preparing them for it and then giving them exposure and preparing them and giving them exposure. And then another way we can fail our children is we forget the duty of encouragement. Martin Luther had a father who was very strict, strict to the point of cruelty. And Luther himself used to say, spare the rod and spoil the child, that is true, but beside the rod, he would say, keep an apple to give him when he's done well. The 18th century artist Benjamin West tells how he became a painter. One day his mom went out, leaving him in charge of his little sister Sally, In his mother's absence, he discovered some bottles of colored ink. He began to paint Sally's portrait. In doing so, he made a considerable mess of things with ink blots everywhere. His mother came back. She saw the mess but said nothing. She picked up the piece of paper and saw the drawing. Why? She said, this is Sally. And she stooped 
and kissed him. Afterwards, Benjamin West always used to say, my mother's kiss made me a painter. Encouragement did more than rebuke could ever do. The novelist Anna Buchan tells how her grandmother had a favorite phrase when she was very old, never discourage youth. So looking at our children through the lens of creation means seeing them for how God has wired them, how they are unique, how they are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it may not be, Dad, that they like what you did when you were young. I've seen many a father who looks back on his days, perhaps playing all kinds of sports or whatever it was, and he is sure if he has a little boy that he will love exactly the same things. But I'm telling you, he may not be wired that way. And you need to observe how God has wired that child uniquely. Rather than imposing on them what you would like them to be, observe who they are, appreciate it, and encourage it. Sometimes you'll hear people say, I want to treat all of my children the same. And that's an understandable sentiment. And it usually means I'm not going to treat one better than another, which, of course, is, is right. But although we treat none of our children better, hear this, we should treat them differently because they are different. There is a football coach named Jeff Fisher. Some of you are big football fans may recognize that name. He went to the uh, Super Bowl with the Tennessee Titans a few years ago. Uh, he was very successful in the National Football League as a coach. Somehow he found himself out of the NFL, and now he's coaching in the USFL, none other than the Michigan Panthers here. So he's fallen on hard times. But, but uh, he was asked a question. I remember on a sports radio show years ago, and it stuck with me. He said when he was coaching in the NFL, with all of the high salaries and all the prima donna athletes, do you treat them the same or do you treat them differently? And I thought his answer was very helpful. He said, I treat them differently under the same rules. I treat them as individuals, but under the same rules. Fathers and parents who see their children through the lens of how they were designed by God, not us, that's the way we're to do it. But nevertheless, we are also not to be naive about our children. Wonderful, made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, but we're not naive about them either. So although fathers are to be encouragers, I say in your outline as well, they are to be trainers. That's why verse 4 says, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training of the Lord. The Greek word that's translated training means discipline. We bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. It refers to enforced learning or learning with structure or learning with some teeth in it. Discipline is required for a child because children require structure in order to grow. The Bible says, a rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Now, why is that true? Because of another proverb, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And why is foolishness bound up in the heart of a child? That's because of something else, that just like you and just like me, they are by nature sinners. And our Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 says, we all come into this world dead in transgressions 
and sin. So this is the fall part of creation, fall, redemption. We encourage our children by seeing them through the lens of how they're wired, how they're made by God uniquely. But we're not naive. We understand that those very gifts that they have, because they are sinners, can be used in sinful ways. But we see the tendency to imbalance and distortion in discipline and instruction very often among parents. Some are very overbearing. Others are very permissive. Very often you have parents that are one or the other. One tends to forget the object, the overbearing one tends to forget the object, namely the child. It's them, not you and your reputation. Sometimes we are such disciplinarians because we're worried about how it will look to other people when our children misbehave. But we have to always remember it's about them, not us. And so avoid being overbearing. And the other, the permissiveness, misunderstands what biblical love is. I've given you a working definition of biblical love a number of times. It is doing what is in the best interest of another. Doing what's in the best interest of another. And when we love our children, we are willing to discipline them when they do wrong because it's in their best interest. So you do this, friends, in training, in disciplining your children. You're teaching your children that a good God has placed good people in their lives to move them toward His good purposes. We discipline our children because we want them to know that a good God has placed good people in their lives to move them toward His good purposes. Notice over and over, God is good. God's ways are are good. God's ways are best, child. And if you do this, it will go well with you. And so I'm doing this for you. Fathers are to be encouragers, seeing them through the lens of creation. They're to be trainers, though, seeing them through, as well, the lens of the fall, and they are to be teachers. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Now, that word instruction is the Greek word nuthateo, and it's translated variously in your New Testament as instruct, but also as warn and admonish. Literally, the Greek word, that nuthateo word, means to put in mind, to place on the mind. And so you instruct them, you impress upon their minds truths about God and about themselves and about the world in which He has placed us and our purpose within it. So you see it used in a number of contexts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle. And if you were to read the first letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, you would discover that they had an issue there. One of the issues was that there were people who weren't working for a living. They were idle. And so they were being disobedient to what the Apostle Paul had told them when he was with them in the city of Thessalonica. And that's why he says you warn those who are idle. He's saying warn the people who are disobedient. In this case, their disobedience is their idleness. Warn them, nuthateo them. 
And then you have it used in Romans chapter 15, where the same Paul writes and says, you yourselves, you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Because you have the Holy Spirit, because therefore you have the goodness of God as a wellspring within you, because you are full of knowledge of the Word of God, as a result of that you are competent, you are able to, and here's the word again, nutheteo, one another. And as you take all of these passages in the New Testament that use that word, pull them together, here's what it, here's what it means. It means loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. Now, we use the word confrontation. That sounds negative to us. It's not always, doesn't always have to be negative. In fact, mostly you don't want it to be negative. But you're simply telling, in this case, the child. You're confronting them with what God says about Himself, about themselves, about His world, and about their place within it, what pleases Him and what does not. And you're doing it for the purpose of change. As they grow, as they sin and they repent, you regularly instruct, impress upon them, put in mind, place on the mind. In our Father's Day video, we had read for us Deuteronomy chapter 6, which says, these commandments that I give you today are, today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Now, I would just say this to you dads, that it is good if you have, are able to have a time of devotion with your children, with your family. If you can get everybody together for 15 minutes and read a passage of Scripture and perhaps give a brief explanation and pray together, that's a, that's a very good thing. But I would also suggest this to you, that living the way we do in our culture and people going 100 miles an hour in different directions very often, sometimes you're not even able to get that. In our home it was like that, especially as the girls got older and they were involved in sports and extracurriculars and everybody's going different ways. But one of the things we did was made it a point to do Deuteronomy 6 regularly. We would talk about the Lord in all settings. We didn't have to have a formal setting. We would be in the van coming back from their sporting event, and we talk about the Lord. We talk about the Lord and how He relates to whether they won or lost. <laughs> what was going, what's going on at school? So when you lie down, when you come in, when you go out, you have the Lord upon saturating your mind, and you're bringing Him to bear on the situations that confront your children. So what is it that we are to put in our children's minds? It's nothing other than the truth of the Word of God. And the Bible deals with every area of life in either precept or principle. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17 can say Scripture equips us for every good work because it addresses everything, either directly or indirectly, by precept or by principle. And that includes not only theological truth, but practical instruction for daily living. This is heady stuff for us if we take it seriously as parents. And we can't delegate it, or excuse me, we can't give it to somebody else. We can delegate it. 
We can partner with others to help us in this task. We can delegate instruction to the church and the school, but please always understand, especially dads, delegation is not abdication. If you choose public school, if you choose private school, if you directly homeschool, in all of those situations, you have not abdicated your responsibility for your child's education. And so what are we giving them? We're giving them the the instruction of the Lord, the Word of God, especially with a focus on the gospel, to see them come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the redemption part of seeing our children through a biblical worldview lens. Creation, how has God wired them? Encourage them in that. But then with the fall, they are sinners. And we see how it can go awry. And so we help them with that from God's Word. But in redemption, we are showing them the corrective, ultimately, is the Lord Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him. Now, as a dad, as you think about all of that, You may say, dude, it's all too much for me. I've got to know my children. I've got to know the Word. I have to love my wife. I have to provide for my family too. How can I do all of that? And the answer is you cannot. And I cannot. Not by ourselves, friends. Here's what I recommend you do. I recommend you find a Bible church that will teach you the Bible so that you can teach them and live it before them. A Bible church that has other people in your same phase of life who can sharpen you. A Bible church that has people who are in the final lap of their race, who have learned from what they did right and what they did wrong, and can help you to not repeat their mistakes, but emulate their successes. And if I can think of a place like that, I'll let let you know. Okay. Seriously, you know, we have, by God's grace, you have that in God's church. This is a family of families. That's what the church is. It's God's family, a family of families. And you have that available to you, but it cannot help you at all if you do not avail yourself of what is offered. Dad, the best thing that you can do is avail yourself of everything that God is offering to you and your family through His church. That's why we do it. Now, on Mother's Day, we had a book for the ladies at a discounted price, and we were to have a book for the men today, uh, likewise, at a discounted price. We ordered it from Amazon. On their normal schedule, it would have been here. Alas, uh, they're arriving today on Sunday on Father's Day, but too late for you to have them this morning, so we'll have to have them for you next week. But the book is titled The Masculine Mandate by Richard Phillips. Richard Phillips was my advisor for the doctoral work that I just completed a few weeks ago, and so I had made a deal with him, if you give me a good grade, I'll hawk your books at my church. (laughs) That's not the deal. It's it's really an excellent book, The Masculine Mandate. So guys, we will have that for you next week. Here's your take-home truth. Fathers are to help their children realize their spiritual potential. And you do that by raising them, looking at them through a biblical worldview, creation, fall, and redemption. All right, those who are going to participate in our parent dedication, 
If you want to go and fetch your children, you can do that now. And while they're doing that, I want to give some explanation about our parent dedication. We call it parent dedication on purpose. Parent dedication rather than baby dedication. Many of you have been a part of a baby dedication. Perhaps you were dedicated as a baby yourself. There's nothing sinful about that, nothing wrong with that. The reason that we emphasize parent dedication is in order to avoid any confusion with like infant baptism or an infant being introduced into the community of faith. The Bible teaches that every person that comes to Christ does so on his or her own. Babies cannot be brought to Christ by someone else. And some have therefore said, I think rightly, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. And they are born again into his family. And so this is not a baby dedication. It's a parent dedication. It is the, the parents dedicating themselves to the task that God has given them in rearing these children as he gives in his word. And so I send to these families uh, these resolutions to which they are committing themselves, and they're going to stand before you in a little bit and ask you to pray for them and to hold them accountable to these, these resolutions. And what I sent them says this, believers recognize that children are a gift from God. It's my privilege to share how you as parents can express your full appreciation to God by dedicating yourselves to the task of raising your children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Parent dedication acknowledges God's sovereignty over the child. Parents present their child before God and His people, asking for grace and wisdom in carrying out their responsibilities. Parents also come praying that their child might one day trust Jesus Christ as Savior for the forgiveness of sin and live a life of service to Him. And to that end, we resolve to do these four things, to ensure that our child learns the panorama of the Bible, particularly gaining knowledge designed to lead him or her to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, to teach our child in both word and deed to love God supremely. Thirdly, to teach our child in both word and deed the priority of God's people in His church above all other human relationships and institutions. And then fourthly, to oversee the moral development of our child such that he may be prepared one day to leave father and mother and carry on the work begun in him or her to the next generation. And all of these families have agreed then to those resolutions and are committing themselves to them. Now, as the, par the parents come forward in just a bit, they will, the fathers will introduce uh, each of their families and each of them is going to receive a gift to remember this day by. So those with little, very little ones get this board book, uh, the biggest story ABC book. Uh, and every family, whether they have little ones or older children, are getting the biggest story Bible storybook. All of them will, will receive this. Now, it has on the inside of it, an insert that says this, this is presented to name of the child or children at parent dedication, June 19, 2022, Father's Day, so that you and your parents can read stories from God's Word together. And then it quotes Psalm 78, 
O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, what we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power, and the wonders that He has done. All right, if you guys will all come forward. So our space has been invaded by the little ones, and it's a delight to, to have them in here with us. We normally have them in nursery and toddler and children's church. Some of you may be familiar with something called family integrated church. That's where they don't have nursery, toddler, children's church. They don't believe in it. They're all in together. Anybody in favor of that? Yeah, me neither. We, but we loved having them in here today. And so we are going to... Uh, have uh, a representative from each family, then introduce the family. Grant, do you have the uh, microphone? Uh, James. James has it down there. All right, James, we'll start with you and then just bring it on down. Okay. Uh, my name is ja James Donovan. This is my wife, Erica, son, Judson, and Ellie. My name is Grant Weaver. This is my wife, Emma, and my daughter, Clementine. My name's Anthony, this is Jessica, we're the Sauters, and this is Isla Josephine Sauter. Yeah. I'm Joy Elwert, and this is Simone. I'm Cher Elwert, and this is Lincoln. And I am Ken Brown, and the proud surrogate grandfather of Lincoln and Simone, along with, along with Kim. And I also wanted to say, I think we have a couple that are coming as well, right? A couple of babies uh, coming? Okay, I just wanted to, so there's, there's more to come from, from that end. Uh, I'm Paul McMillan, this is Beth, and Maeve, Maeve and Mallory. Hello, I'm Mark Purdy, this is Saya, uh, Mark Jr., and Bishop. All right, I am Billy Cochran, this is my beautiful wife, Madison Cochran. This is the L train, Luke McNish, Leela Grace, and Lennox Blaine. <laughs> Very good. Well, we are delighted that these families uh, think so highly of the tasks that God has given them, that they're willing to stand before you and say, we've committed ourselves to these resolutions, and we're asking you to pray for us and to hold us accountable in the years ahead as God's church family. So now we're going to have a prayer of dedication for each of these families, all right? Let's bow before the Lord. Our loving Father, we stand before you on this special day, full of gratitude for the marvelous grace that you've extended to each one here. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us not because of works that we have done, but because of your great mercy. And Lord, we thank you for the influences that you used to bring us to Christ, for some godly parents, others a godly spouse, still others friends and acquaintances. Lord, we see now that you've guided our steps to bring us to yourself, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you for our salvation, but we thank you for your many other gifts as well, and among these, the wonderful privilege of raising our children for you. 
Thank you for entrusting them to us. Lord, we acknowledge our need of your grace to raise these children in a way that's pleasing to you and will lead them to salvation. There are so many obstacles that would hinder us from achieving that all-important goal, a society that's increasingly hostile to all that is right and good, not to mention our own frailty and sin. Lord, without you, we can do nothing, and so we ask for your strength as we set out to fulfill the vows made this day. Lord, I ask you to bless Billy and Madison. James and Erica, share Joy, Paul and Bethany, Mark and Saya, Anthony and Jessica, and Emma and Grant as they seek to obey you and raise these precious children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We, your people, thank you for these dear families, and we thank you that they're part of our family of families. And as the family of God, help us to, as your word says, encourage each other to love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day approaching. Grant us collectively a resolve to see that no child in our church family wanders from the truth. And each family obeys you and keeps their vow before you. Lord, we love and praise you for your gracious work in our lives. We go forward now, confident not in ourselves, but in the God who has called us. For you are faithful, and you also will do it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. All right. Thank you all, guys. Thanks very much. And let's stand now for our closing song. Yeah, you're supposed to go. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stand for our closing song. Thanks. All right. We're going to sing May the Peace together to close our service.